Jackson's brigade awoke around 3 a.m., ate a hasty breakfast, and then fell into ranks in the warm, windless, early morning darkness. The soldiers had no idea what they were about to do, where they were about to go, or what role they would have in the battle plan. They were impatient. They were hoping that they would be lucky enough to do some fighting before the war was over. Jackson, too, waited, but the wait would not be long. At 9.30, they were ordered to march northwest to the Stone Bridge. They would never get there. En route, Jackson learned from a courier that the Confederate troops under a general from South Carolina named Bernard B. were hard-pressed in a fight to the west of the Stone Bridge. Jackson's men could already hear the noise of battle. Acting without orders, Jackson set the men on a brutally fast march. One artilleryman recalled that they were running that distance like panting dogs with flopping tongues, and our mouths and throats full of the impalpable red dust of the red clay country, thirsting for water almost unto death. As they approached the battlefield, the sounds of musket fire and artillery were ringing in their ears. What they saw was shocking and bewildering. Large numbers of Confederate soldiers moving in the opposite direction, broken, bloody, and in full retreat. Their commands were all cut to pieces, the men told the wide-eyed Virginians. The day was lost. Soon General B. appeared and rode to meet Jackson at the head of his column. General, they are driving us, he said. The two men knew each other. They had fought side by side in the Mexican-American War. Jackson's reply to General B. was simple. Sir, we will give them the bayonet. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we begin our discussion of Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Now, on April 22nd of 1861, Thomas J. Jackson showed up in Richmond with 176 VMI candidates. That's the Virginia Military Institute. The place was a madhouse, swarming with new Army recruits. They had been streaming in day and night since Virginia declared secession. These men knew nothing of military methods or protocols. They came in every imaginable, brightly colored uniform, some carrying obsolete weapons, others carrying nothing but butcher knives from home. Richmond was a brick city of 40,000 people, which rose high from the banks of the James River. It had been the capital of Virginia and now was the capital of the newly minted Confederate States of America. Now, Jackson arrived amid a swirl of confusion with his charges from Charlottesville and delivered them to the Virginia authorities as he had been ordered. Then he had nothing to do. He had no orders and was adrift in the city. The Confederacy had a desperate need for experienced officers, and they knew Jackson was certainly experienced. He was a West Point graduate and had served with distinction in the Mexican-American War. However, it appears Jackson's reputation as an eccentric and a martinet had preceded him. He was not wanted by those in the position of power in Richmond. Now, Webster defines martinet as, one, a strict disciplinarian, or two, a person who stresses a rigid adherence to the details of form and methods. By this definition, one could certainly call Jackson a martinet. Indeed, he was strict, a very stern disciplinarian. Besides this, his students at VMI thought him strange and they mocked him for his quirky habits and his unusual manner as a nerdy artillery professor and science teacher. 
Though he had no orders, he made himself useful and volunteered to be an artillery drill master. In doing this, he joined several of his former fellow U.S. Army officers on the training ground at Richmond College. His supervisor was the flamboyant John B. Magruder, who had been Jackson's commander in the Mexican-American War. Here, Jackson was just one of a huge crowd. He was quiet, reticent, shy, and lost in a sea of self-seekers and self-promoters jostling for position. He was plainly dressed, bordering on shabby, in a weather-beaten cap and a faded blue uniform. He was also tight-lipped, polite, but not eager to chat uh, or make small talk. A modest man of apparently modest talent, who smiled but never laughed. He had left his wife, Anna, back in Lexington, Virginia, to look after their homestead. They had no children, and she had written that she would like to have joined him in Richmond, but he demurred. On April 25th, he wrote her back that things were too uncertain and chaotic at the moment. He wrote, I received your precious letter in which you speak of coming here in the event of my remaining. I would like very much to see you, my sweet little face, but my darling had better remain at her home as my countenance here is very uncertain. Then, the same day, his orders finally came through, but they were a crushing disappointment. They confirmed his fears that he had indeed been slighted and ignored. He had been made a major in Virginia's topographical engineers. In effect, he would be assigned to a desk in Richmond to provide drawings of terrain, buildings, and fortifications. This had been his worst subject at West Point and was an insult to a man with combat experience who wanted to command men in the field. Indeed, this assignment implied a lack of respect for him as a soldier because it would put him behind a desk instead of the front lines. Fortunately for Jackson, though, he was not the only one who saw the absurdity of having a man with wartime experience on desk duty. His old friend from Lexington, who was now the Virginia governor, John Letcher, found out about this and quickly intervened. By April 26th, Jackson had been reassigned as colonel of the Virginia Volunteers. This turned out to be the best possible assignment for Jackson. Not only was it a colonelcy, but he would soon receive orders to take command of Harper's Ferry. Now, at the time, Harper's Ferry was the northernmost outpost in the Confederacy and a place of great strategic value. It contained an armory for producing weapons and was located on one of the Union's key railroad lines. So he left that night, and on his way he received orders from Robert E. Lee, the ranking officer in the Confederacy, quote, You will proceed without delay to Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and assume command of the post, unquote, wrote, wrote Lee. Jackson had met Lee in Mexico and liked him and admired him very much. He wrote his wife, Anna, that he regarded Lee as a better officer than Winfield Scott. It turned out his first assignment was no accident. Lee assigned Jackson to this posting because it was located near to where Jackson had grown up in western Virginia, which is now the state of West Virginia. Jackson was very familiar with the area and would enjoy kinship and respect of the local uh, locals and the troops. 
This assignment was a political expedient because Western Virginia was indeed shaky in their commitment to the new Confederacy. In fact, two years later, this area of Virginia would secede from the state and form the state of West Virginia. Meanwhile, his immediate job at Harper's Ferry was to organize the companies already there into regiments and battalions. This tiny town on the confluence of the Potomac and Shenandoah rivers was in chaos. Some 2,500 men, mostly from the Shenandoah Valley, were assembled in the town, and in charge of them were four colorful generals of the militia. The generals were uh, decked out in cocked hats with feathers, sabers, and pistols. They had huge entourages with aides, adjutants, and servants, and whiskey was being served by the barrel. What they presided over was an organized, organizational disaster. They had no medical facilities, no quartermaster, no chief of ordnance. There was little ammunition and very few rifles. Amid all the pomp and chaos, the new commanding colonel who arrived on the evening of April 27th of 1861 was a huge disappointment to them. He was the opposite of what they thought a leader should be. He was somber, uncourtly, undashing. He had no prancing horses and no gold uh, trim on his uniform. Instead, he was wearing a faded blue VMI uniform and a beaten-up cadet cap that was pulled down to his nose. One newspaper correspondent wrote, quote, The Old Dominion must be sadly deficient in military men, if this is the best she can do, unquote. Many of the militia officers stormed off to Richmond to complain. The idea that the imperial general were, these imperial generals were being ousted in favor of this shabbily dressed, socially inept professor seemed disgraceful. But one of Jackson's most important character traits, which will show up again and again, was that he cared very little about the opinions of others. Unmoved, he worked quickly to reorganize the troops as he had been ordered. Working long hours late into, into the night for many days, he slowly but firmly stripped the militia companies of their independence and hammered them together into regiments. He got rid of the whiskey and implemented a rigorous and unforgiving program of drill and instruction. The men were up at 5 a.m. and continued for 17 hours, which included seven hours of marching. Some days were longer. On May the 2nd, Jackson ordered his troops to sleep on their weapons and scheduled a full inspection at 1.30 a.m. To teach his soldiers, Jackson secured 10 cadets from VMI and their expertise was crucial in the early war preparations. This is because there was virtually no training for early officers in the South. They often sat up late at night reading printed materials by candlelight to figure out what to do. Within a week, Jackson had quietly rebuilt the entire military operation at Harper's Ferry. Many of the militia officers who had left in a huff returned to take up their place in the new volunteer army. This strange and peculiar professor was now squarely in command. Jackson was merciless when it came to disobedience, tardiness, or neglect of duty. He doled out penalties fairly and even-handedly and quickly. Duty was duty, and if you shirked it, it was at your own peril. 
Men were arrested for any infraction and sent to the guardhouse. Jackson had been considered a martinet at VMI, but his men were discovering, as was he, that his obsession with petty detail was now evidence of an iron will. But men who performed their duty also found the rigid disciplinarian had a gentle side as well. John Imboden wrote, He was the easiest man in the army to get along with pleasantly so long as one did his duty. He was patient, forbearing, and tolerant of mistakes, provided his students were trying diligently to learn. Now Lee had tasked him with removal of the rifled musket fabricating machinery from the former uh, Federal Armory there at Harper's Ferry and to move that to Richmond. Within a week, two-thirds of the work had been done. He turned out to be creative and industrious at securing wagons, horses, and also at stealing locomotives and cars from the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. By May 11th, Jackson was in command of 4,500 soldiers who had been transformed into the rudimentary uh, military force there. By May 21st, he had about 8,000 men and cavalry from Virginia, Mississippi, Alabama, Kentucky, and Maryland. He was also very lucky with the quality of leadership under his command. His staff and officers were some of the best in the Confederacy. This also included two exceptional cavalry officers, Jeb Stewart and Turner Ashby. His horse was a small, gaunt, sorrel gelding that Jackson has bought, had bought for his wife named Fancy. This horse turned out to, be an extraordinary, to have extraordinary endurance, a gentle gait, and the ability to sleep peacefully in the middle of the hottest battle. He became known as Little Sorrel and would be Jackson's principal mount for the rest of his life. Now, Harper's Ferry was almost indefensible due to its low topography. It was surrounded by mountains on three sides, which made it an easy target for enemy artillery. Jackson addressed this by uh, stationing men on high ground on the Maryland side of the Potomac. However, Maryland had not seceded from the Union, and this was a clear violation of the state's sovereignty. Lee had warned him not to do this unless it was deemed a military necessity. Now, performing one's duty was the driving force of Jackson's life. However, he lacked an appreciation for political and strategic nuance of state relations. Although he was proving his mettle as an administrator, he was also getting a reputation in Richmond as an over-eager person, someone who needed to be reined in. Soon, General Joseph E. Johnston showed up to replace Colonel Jackson as commander of the post. The geography of Harper's Ferry on the very tip of the Confederacy made it much too important to leave the command to a colonel. But since Jackson had not been informed of the change of command, he politely but firmly refused to relinquish it to Johnson until he could provide proof. He was indeed a stickler for protocol and military rule. So soon Johnston's staff located a telegram of Lee's endorsement and the command was quickly handed over. Johnston soon also concluded the post was far too vulnerable to attack and decided to abandon it altogether, much to the chagrin of Jackson, Lee, and Jefferson Davis. 
However, his mind was made up, and on June the 14th, the Confederates evacuated uh, Harper's Ferry, destroying much of the town as they left. They also destroyed a magnificent 900-foot Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Bridge over the Potomac, as well as the railroad shop complex. Jackson's first action in battle as a commander came soon after the evacuation of Harper's Ferry on July 2nd in the area of Martinsburg, Virginia, now West Virginia. He had about 2,300 men in camp, and he had just heard a large Union force under General Robert Patterson had crossed the Potomac and was advancing. Jackson's orders from Johnston were to retire if the enemy approached in force, but he could not tell yet how many Union men he was facing. So he decided to send out one of his four regiments, the 5th Virginia, on a reconnaissance in force, and he went with them. Jackson's force of about 380 advanced on the Federals at 9.15 a.m. at a place called Falling Waters. Patterson's Union force was about 3,000 strong. As they approached, Jackson swung his men immediately into action, sending one of the companies on a flanking movement to the right. His skirmishers were fired upon and returned fire, driving back the enemy. The Federals came on the second time and were again repulsed. But he was clearly outnumbered, and now Jackson could see just how bad the mismatch was. Federal guns began to rake his position, and his men were being flanked on both sides. Jackson then gave the order to fall back, and he handled the retreat remarkably. It was the first real sign of his talent as a field commander. He held his command together as it executed a difficult task of falling back three miles under fire against an eight-to-one numerical advantage. The regiment withdrew slowly and deliberately, constantly checking the federal troops as they went. He had also benefited from the debut uh, performance of Jeb Stewart, whose Virginia cavalry had been instrumental in making the retreat an orderly one. At one point, Stewart and his men captured an entire company of Union soldiers, even though they were completely outnumbered. After the Battle of Falling Waters, Johnston was quick to realize what Jackson had accomplished. So on July 4th, he wrote the War Department in Richmond to recommend that Jackson be promoted without delay to the grade of Brigadier General. But General Lee had already come to that conclusion himself, in spite of whatever reservations Richmond had about his rash behavior. Now he was a brigadier general in the Provisional Army of the Confederate States, as they called themselves at the moment. He remained obsessed with duty and detail. Ignoring the heat and the dust, which were plentiful in the summer of 1861, he ordered six drill sessions per day. This was punctuated by camp duties, roll calls, and meals. The men marched at night, too, often for half the night. Quote, Jackson is considered rigid to the borders of tyranny by the men here, unquote, wrote one captain in his brigade. But that same captain also said he believed Jackson, quote, enjoyed the entire confidence of his command, unquote. Jackson was immensely proud of his men. Many of his soldiers noted, as hard as Jackson could be, he, was cared about, he cared about their welfare almost 
to a motherly extent, was his concern for their well-being. The men were getting used to this strange, idiosyncratic behavior of Jackson. He was just as eccentric as he had been at VMI, but his behavior was now on display before thousands of men. He had his peculiar way of walking, his peculiar ungraceful way of riding little sorrel, his dirty uniform, and his odd way of wearing his hat so that you could barely see his eyes, and his tendency to walk away abruptly in the middle of a conversation. He dined on cornbread and water, slept, quote, on the floor of a good room, unquote, in a house with little or no furniture in Winchester, though he also found that he liked sleeping outside and spent several weeks sleeping outdoors on the ground, saying that it, quote, agreed with me well, except when it rained, and even then it was but slightly objectionable, unquote. Jackson was religious in the extreme. He considered himself a holy warrior in a holy war. He prayed and read his Bible and dedicated every act of his life, every thought he had, to God. He did this consciously every day. The blessings of life, and in the month of July of of the year of 1861, Jackson believed he was in a high state of grace, all came from the hand of God. Union General Erwin McDowell was the top field general in the Federal Army, and he was very nervous. As he saw it, he was being forced to attack the Confederacy against his will by what he thought was a conspiracy of newspaper editors, congressmen, cabinet officers, rank-and-file soldiers, and Lincoln himself. He was feeling more and more uncertain of himself. His men were certainly too green and not ready, he argued. The answer from Lincoln was, You are green, it is true, but they are green also. You are all green alike. Now the Confederate forces in Virginia were split into two parts. Joseph E. Johnston's force of about 20,000 was located to the west in the Shenandoah Valley. Jackson's brigade was part of Johnston's army. And PGT Beauregard's rebel force of a similar size was located to the east in Manassas Junction. Manassas was a key strategic location because it was where the two most important Virginia railroads met. The Orange and Alexandria Railroad, the principal north-south line in Virginia, crossed the Manassas Gap Railroad at this point. Manassas Gap Railroad serviced the Shenandoah Valley, which was the breadbasket of the state. Now, Union General Robert Patterson had one job. It was to keep Johnston's rebels over to the west in the Shenandoah Valley occupied. He could, under no circumstances, allow Johnston to link up with Beauregard in Manassas. This is because Union General Erwin McDowell was about to attack Beauregard's rebels at Manassas as a first step on the road to to Richmond. With the fate of the nation apparently hanging on the whereabouts of Johnson, Joseph E. Johnston in the West, what followed in the Shenandoah Valley in July was one of the great military blunders of the Civil War. It, was ve- it very likely altered the course of the war and profoundly changed the lives of Thomas Jackson and his Virginia Brigade. 
On July 16th, Patterson finally ordered a reconnaissance in force of Johnston's army, which had by now fallen back to the town of Winchester. Patterson had been told that McDowell was marching that day on Manassas, and so the purpose of his demonstration was to make sure Johnston and his Confederate force did not go anywhere. That was the main idea, prevent the two Confederate armies from uniting, as we discussed before. So a small body of of Union infantry and cavalry went forward and briefly engaged Colonel Jeb Stewart's cavalry. But Patterson suddenly became frightened that Johnston's small army was much bigger than it actually was. So instead of advancing, Patterson's army retreated. On July 17th, 18,000 Union troops marched seven miles back to Charlestown. He decided to move forward the next day, but then lost his nerve again and did nothing even though he was being constantly goaded by Washington to move forward. Meanwhile, Johnston was already on his way to join forces with Beauregard for what was going to be the big showdown with McDowell at Manassas Junction. The rebels actually made use of of the aforementioned Manassas Gap Railroad for their journey. This allowed Johnston's army to join up with Beauregard's forces in record time. This movement became the first large-scale transfer of troops to battle in the history of warfare. Nowhere on earth had this been done before. Now, Jackson's brigade was one of the first to make it to Manassas, after which Beauregard ordered him to take his place on the defensive line he was constructing. Beauregard was actually putting in place the first large-scale defensive position of the war. An eight-mile-long line made up of 32,000 troops along the south side of the slow-flowing watercourse called Bull Run. Bull Run wound like a snake from northwest to southeast in an arc. By July 20th, reinforced by Johnston's forces from Winchester, including Jackson's brigade, Beauregard finally had his line in place. Now, Union General Erwin McDowell actually had a very good plan. He had four divisions that totaled 35,000 men a few miles from Bull Run in Centerville, Virginia. His idea was to bring just enough force against a a few sections of Beauregard's eight-mile-long defensive line along Bull Run and occupy their attention. Meanwhile, the main Union force would make a sweeping march to the west, unseen, uh, under cover of woods. Then they would cross the Bull Run upstream of the rebel force at Sudley Ford. There, they would execute a massive flanking maneuver against the rebel left. The rebels would not detect it until it was too late. However, the next day, the story for the Union army would not be of a glorious turning movement and spectacular opening victory. Instead, it would be a stunning loss that featured an unknown brigadier general named Thomas J. Jackson. Now that night was the last night before the big, first decisive battle of the American Civil War. The night was lovely, soft, and bright, as experienced by thousands of soldiers on both sides who could not sleep. Quote, this is one of the most beautiful nights that, imagine can con- that imagination can conceive, wrote one Union soldier from his camp. The sky is perfectly clear, the moon is full and bright, and the air 
is as still as if it were not within a few hours of being disturbed by the roar of cannon, unquote. In the Union camps, regimental bands, bands played and the men sang the Star-Spangled Banner. One newspaper correspondent riding through the camp called the scene the Picture of Enchantment. The next morning at 8.45 a.m., communications chief for the Confederacy, E. Porter Alexander, signaled to the rebel forces on the left under Shanks Evans, Look out on your left. You are turned. He then wrote a note to Beauregard. I see a body of troops crossing the Bull Run about two miles above the Stone Bridge. The head of the column is in the woods on this side. The rear of the column is in the woods on the other side. About half a mile of its length is visible in the open ground in between. I can see both infantry and artillery. This was actually a small portion of the massive Union force, which was now crossing Bull Run. McDowell had been worried about the slow pace of his march. He knew, too, that when his troops arrived at Sudley Ford, rebel columns were already moving toward him. But because his maneuver had not been detected until Porter Alexander saw him at 845, McDowell's men now faced only a few small Confederate forces, uh, a a brigade under Shanks Evans and a brigade under Bernard B. B, acting on Alexander's tip, had hustled, without orders, west to take on the Federal onslaught at Matthews Hill, where the initial battle was taking place. Now this brings us back to our narrative at the beginning of the episode. Jackson's men had been up since uh, since 3 a.m. when he learned of the disaster unfolding in the west. He had then taken his brigade on a brutal forced march toward the sound of the fighting west of the Stone Bridge. By noon, as Jackson arrived on the scene, the Federals had chased the last of the Confederates from Matthews Hill. The battle, which had lasted two hours, had been entirely the result of the initiative of a few rebel officers. The Confederates' top commanders, Johnston and Beauregard, had not been involved. They had not known that the battle was taking place on Matthews Hill and nearby Henry Hill. All responsibility had passed to the rebel brigadiers and colonels. The initial battle was nearly over now. The arrival of young, aggressive Union General William T. Sherman across the Stone Bridge had put the rebels to full flight. All McDowell needed to do now was to push forward. The road was open now for the Federals to take Manassas Junction. Total victory was in their grasp. This is what awaited Jackson's men when they topped Henry Hill which was an open, gently swelling patch of land containing two homesteads, some fruit trees, and a small cornfield. They saw rebel stragglers streaming toward the rear, and they could see a mile across open fields to Matthews Hill an enormous blue mass of Union soldiers, quote, thick as a wheat in in a field, unquote. Having having driven their enemies from the field, the rebels now appeared to be massing for another assault that would drive them clear back to Manassas Junction. There was nothing to stop them. This is the point where Jackson made his statement to a panicked Bernard B. that he would give them the bayonet. But he didn't need to yet. Instead of attacking the rebels and easily winning the day, McDowell chose to wait. In fact, He waited two history-changing hours. Jackson made good use of this time. 
he backed his men down the reverse slope of Henry Hill and had them lie down flat in the nearby woods with artillery in their front. This position offered Jackson a wide, obstructed field of fire. Union troops cresting the northern side of Henry Hill would now have to cross 300 yards of open ground to get uh, at him under heavy fire. Jackson was riding back and forth, setting his lines, and presenting a large and inviting target to the Federals. However, observers noted he seemed relaxed, unworried, and unnaturally calm. It was during this two-hour interlude that Johnston and Beauregard finally showed up with much-needed reserves, and they also went to work patching together a defense from the scattered and demoralized rebel troops in the area. At 2.30, the Union Army finally started moving, with its artillery out front. Their attack began when 11 guns crested the north side of Henry Hill. Jackson's guns now roared to life, too, in a duel with the Union guns at nearly point-blank range. Jackson continued to ride up and down his line on Little Sorrel, who was as unperturbed by the gunfire as he was, repeating, Steady, men, steady, all is well. Jackson was wounded in the hand at this point while holding his hand high in prayer, but he refused medical attention and bound it with a handkerchief. Now, Jackson's men were fending off attacks on the right and the left, and their outdated smoothbore artillery actually had an advantage over the newer Federal artillery, which was firing over their heads. This was the genius of Jackson's chosen position on the reverse slope of the hill. Intended or not, this position was likely the reason for the Confederate victory. It was at this time that General Bernard B. comes back into the picture, He had been busy since his retreat trying to rally what remained of his brigade. Finally, he came upon 100 of his men, and he asked them, Will you follow me back to where the fighting is going on? The men responded with a resounding yes. Now B pointed to his left up the slope toward the pine woods on the edge of Henry Hill. Yonder stands Jackson like a stone wall. Let us go to his assistance. This statement was overheard by four witnesses and was probably intended to spur his men into the fight, but B's words would become some of the most famous uttered during the war. They gave birth to a name and a legend, Stonewall Jackson, and they were among the last words ever spoken by General B because he had less than an hour to live. Now there is some controversy as to whether B intended these words as a compliment to Jackson or a pejorative. I tend to doubt the latter because B was, at this moment, trying to motivate his men into action. Of course, we will never know because B was soon killed on this battlefield. Now the battle had changed. What was an artillery duel at this point became personal, face-to-face, close-in combat at close range. It began when the 14th New York, a regiment from Brooklyn, wearing red trousers and red kepis, trained a murderous fire on the 33rd Virginia. The Virginians retreated from some recently captured guns, losing a third of their men. Suddenly, Jackson's troops on their left were collapsing. The emboldened New Yorkers now came straight on against the Confederate center. 
the 4th and the 27th regiments, who had been on their bellies in the woods for several hours. The usually reserved Jackson was all animation now, eyes alight, face glowing in the heat of battle, moving along his line, telling his men, Reserve your fire until they come within fifty yards, then fire and give them the bayonet, and when you charge, yell like furies. The New Yorkers moved forward and were driven back, regrouped, came on again, and were repulsed again with canister and lead. Acting like veterans instead of the green troops that they were, they attacked a third time, many of them coming within a few yards of Jackson's lines in the loud and close fight. The Virginians cut them to pieces. The Yankee battle line faltered and Jackson prepared to charge. He ordered his artillery from the field, then rode over to the commander of the 4th Virginia Regiment, Colonel James Preston. Order the men to stand up, he said. We'll charge them now and drive them to Washington. Obeying their orders and screaming like whatever they conceived furies to be, Jackson's Virginians swept straight out of the woods toward the retreating enemy and toward the Federal batteries on the far edge of Henry Hill. Now the scream Jackson initiated here is described by author S.C. Gwynn. It was the implausible result of each man giving a sequence of three sounds that registered somewhere between the screech of a bird and the bark of a fox. A short, high-pitched yelp followed by a short, lower-pitched bark followed by a long, high-pitched yelp. Collectively, the noise sounded feral, unearthly, and inhuman. It would become the stuff of Union nightmares throughout the war. The practice would spread through the entire Confederate Army and soon would have a name, the Rebel Yell. Jackson's two regiments drove forward, piercing the enemy's center in Beauregard's words and capturing the Federal guns. The charge of Jackson's men was terrific, wrote uh, Private John Castler. The men seemed to have caught the dauntless spirit and determined will of their heroic commander. More Confederate troops were now in the field, having been ordered forward by Beauregard. As dramatic as it had been, Jackson's charge was only the beginning of a bitter fight for the possession of, of Henry Hill. For whatever reason, these troops on both sides fought fearlessly and stubbornly and went down in large numbers. Colonel Francis Barlow, one of the rebel heroes of the morning fight, was shot dead. Bernard B. was mortally wounded. Jackson, on a horse that was limping due to a leg wound, was holding his wounded hand aloft, his tunic torn at the edges by several bullet holes. Suddenly, it was McDowell's army that was in trouble. His midday lapse had, brought, had bought Jackson and Beauregard time, and time had brought them reinforcements both from the old Bull Run line and from Johnston's arriving Army of the Shenandoah. New, fresh Virginia regiments now collided with the Federals at Henry House, driving several surprised New York regiments off the, off the hill. Suddenly, the Union boys, who had exalted in their victory of a few moments before, were in full retreat. After two, uh, two hours of brutal fighting, the Confederates held the precious hill again. The scene was horrific. The ground was thick with dead and dying men and horses, the wreckage of wagons and cannons, and of the house where old Mrs. Henry had been killed that day by an artillery shell. But the hill was theirs. 
Now federal elation gave way to despair. McDowell, understanding that Henry Hill was lost, launched a final attack from a long rise just to the west called Chin Ridge, trying yet again to turn the Confederate left flank. But as he was preparing his attack, two more fresh brigades from Johnston's army, one of them commanded by Jubal Early, crashed into the Federal right, surprising them and staggering them backwards. Union commanders tried to rally them, but soon saw that it was hopeless. McDowell ordered them to withdraw. The retreat began in an orderly fashion, but a retreat, as it turned out, required as much skill as an attack. And because these men had no experience, the orderly retreat turned into a disorderly rout. The Federal Green troops succumbed to their innermost fears. Untested and untrained as they were, they threw down their guns and equipment, turned and ran in a full-scale panic. Soldiers by the thousands merged into a terrified, disorganized mob several miles long, whose only thought was to flee to the safety of Washington, D.C. They reeled across the Bull Run fords. They left behind them their provisions, overcoats, knapsacks, blankets, muskets, canteens, and cartridge boxes. Most did not stop running until they were, were, were well within the safe confines of the Washington defenses. The magnitude of the Confederate victory soon became apparent to everyone, including Davis, who reluctantly allowed his men to wrap him in the Confederate, in Confederate flag. Cheers rang through miles of Confederate soldiers, all the way back to Longstreet's troops at Blackburn's Ford, who had, missed, who had missed the entire show. The rebels were wild with excitement. As one wrote, it, quote, passed all bounds, it approached madness. Every man of the thousands assembled threw their caps in the air, officers and all, unquote. Some of them even believed, as they stood amid the wreckage of Henry Hill, that this was the end of the war. In the North, reactions ranged from despair to visions of, of apocalypse. We are utterly and disgracefully routed, beaten, whipped, wrote Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune. On every brow sits sullen, scorching, black despair, he wrote to Lincoln, in a suddenly defeatist mood. If it is best for the country and for mankind that we make peace with the rebels, and on their own terms, do not shrink from even that. Now join me next time as we continue our discussion of General Thomas J. Jackson. Mm-hmm.